Hey everybody, we are back for part two of our Ultimate Camera episode, where Dustin and I continue our discussion from last time. We talk about the various types of imaging that you might want to do, whether it's wide field spacescapes, or planetary lunar imaging, or solar imaging, as well as the kinds of deep sky objects you might want to look at, whether it be the Orion Nebula or the Eagle Nebula. And we talk about what kind of camera setup would be ideal for each of those situations. And we also talk about some of the brands that we like. So let's get started. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Space Junk, a weekly podcast dedicated to the amazing hobby of amateur astronomy. Each week, we'll bring you interesting and fun discussions with an eye towards providing you with the latest information and advice on the tools, gadgets, software, and techniques for maximizing your enjoyment of the night sky. Your hosts are Tony Darnell from DeepAstronomy.Space and Dustin Gibson from OPT Telescopes, a world leader in telescopes and accessories. Okay, so... Welcome back, everybody. We're going to start. This is episode part two of our ultimate camera episode on Space Junk Podcast. And last time, you remember, our heroes left you with knowledge about how, what the different types of characteristics of cameras, the two different kinds of cameras that we mostly deal with in astronomy, CMOS and CCDs. And we gave you some some heavy knowledge on some of the things like well depth and pixel scale and quantum efficiency, all that fun stuff that is good to know when you buy a camera for astronomy. Also, whether you should be using your DSLR or not. So if you haven't heard that episode, please go back and listen. You don't necessarily need to listen to that before you listen to this one, but it would help to give you some more background. So we're picking up today where we left off last week, and we left it off with the various kinds of cameras that you would want to use for different kinds of things, like whether you want to take pictures of the Milky Way, would you use the same kind of setup as you would for, a, saying, taking a picture of Jupiter? And I think you can guess the ideas or the answer. No, but, you know, we're going we're gonna to go into that a little bit more. But first, let me bring Dustin up. You out there, Dustin? I'm here. I'm here. I'm excited to is. get into this second part of this that was fun last week. Yeah, and I've been getting good feedback on it too. People really uh, appreciated the the information that we gave them. So let's keep going. Well, um, you know why? Is because it's so confusing. <laughs> it is. Yeah, I know, right? This is it is bewildering. I remember yeah. first getting into it myself, and it was like, I what the heck am I? You know, if I buy this camera, am I going to see anything with it with this telescope? One of the the things I was worried about the most was things like vignetting, right? Because I guess right. back in the day that was an issue, right? That would be the part where it still is. You, you, oh, is it okay? Yeah, so yeah, you know. Uh, vignetting is where your field of view of, of your telescope cuts off uh, some of your real estate on your CCD and you're basically throwing away pixels. So that always used to worry me. And so it's important to kind of match all that stuff up. But man, it's a lot to know. Yeah, there are, there are a lot of variables. But really, once you under, understand a few concepts, it becomes really simple to distinguish all the differences and to really make the right purchase to make sure that you're getting the right camera for the job you're trying to do because they are very different. You wouldn't want the same camera for Milky Way that you're trying to get for planetary, you know, and, and things like that. So just understanding a few basic concepts, I feel like clears up a lot. And then you see there are a lot of repeating sensors in different camera brands. So you can really start to distinguish the subtle differences between brands um, and in what you're really paying for with maybe one brand over another. Yeah. And I think we alluded to this last episode, but we should probably actually say the words this time. They're 
there, there isn't really a all around one one size fits all camera is there you can't just get one camera and hope that and just think it's going to work with everything i mean you kind of have to match it up with what you want to look at right yeah that's still true um it may not always be true because cameras are getting so good so fast that at a certain point it feels like as the resolution increases pixels are getting smaller and smaller you know there are cameras that are going to be getting to the point where you can shoot wide and crop into just about anything you want to um but there's still you know there's still the need for um specific cameras for specific functions and i think for you know the next decade we're still going to see that be a reality but cameras are getting better and better by the day and and what's possible with cameras now was not possible you know 10 years ago with consumer cameras and i think the same will be true but right now there's still still quite a bit to know and especially if you're trying to really match the camera specifically to a function or to your telescope that you already have then it's worth taking the time to understand these concepts so that you're not just buying a camera based on what is trendy at the moment or you know what's the next product but making sure that it's the right product for what you're trying to do you can sort of split all of this up the kind of imaging that you'll do as an amateur into i guess basically four different categories you'll be looking at things like all of the sky wide super wide field stuff like taking pictures of the milky way or uh space scapes these are the kind of things that um rogelio uh bernal uh, you know he's one of the best uh astrophotographers at doing that kind of uh that kind of imaging, uh, but there's also planetary imaging and there's deep sky stuff, both narrow band and wide field. So, so um, let's start with the, I, I guess it's the easiest stuff. Maybe, maybe you might think it is, and I don't know what you, what you think about this, but the wide field stuff, the stuff that takes pictures of huge areas of the sky, like half the sky at once, what kind of camera would you need for that? Yeah. I, you know, I, so I had a friend asking me the different types, and you, like you said, there are four. You got Milky Way, Planetary, Wide Field Deep Sky, and then Long Focal Length Deep Sky. Those would be the four that I would say are the okay. main main categories, and I think that's what you were alluding to. Yes, yes. But Sorry, I didn't read it out I w- exactly I was, that way, but you're right. I was trying to explain this to a friend that's a you know a more traditional photography a photographer. So you know what I call the simple photography, which is daytime photography where there's a lot of light. Because a, a photographer's <laughs> job is to collect light, right? And yeah. when there's a lot of it, it um, you don't have to do these long exposures. You don't have to track the rate the earth is spinning. You get a, a lot of things handed to you. And so, you know, I give them a hard time about that. But anyway, um, if I was really trying to break these down into normal photography categories and, and relate them to that world, I would say Milky Way would be the astronomy equivalent of landscape photography. And, and it very, you know, quite literally has landscapes included in it often. So you see the Milky Way, but you also see so much context in the image. You see mountains in the foreground or the ocean or whatever. So when you're saying wide field, I mean, that is truly very, very wide field. So that would be the equivalent of somebody going out with their like DSLR. The sky. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So going out with their DSLR and getting the shot of Yosemite or, you know, the Grand Canyon, that's, that's what Milky Way photography is. And it's just the astronomy version because the Milky Way is a huge chunk of the sky. This is not something that requires a lot of magnification. Actually, in fact, it becomes 
much more challenging to do it with magnification. So people generally use lenses that are actually wider than the human eye focal length. So you, you go wider than the standard, what it is, I think 23 millimeters, roughly, if I'm, if I remember that correctly, is the, what the equivalent is of the human eye. And people are shooting this at like 12 millimeters or 18 millimeters. And so really, really wide field is what a lot of people are using, but very, very rarely are people using long focal length telescopes to shoot big chunks of the Milky Way. So that's kind of the Milky Way portion. And when we're talking about which camera is best for that, we almost always recommend sticking to the camera that most people already have, which is your DSLR, you know, your traditional, your Canon or your Nikon, you know, or these mirrorless cameras like Sony and Fujifilm and, you know, Olympus. That stuff is what's going to perform best because your lens options are not long focal length. The longest focal lengths you see there are generally, you know, 300 millimeters around that range, whereas telescopes kind of start at the 200 millimeter range and go up. So you really want to be when you're shooting that, you know, 50 millimeters and under is a good general rule for people starting uh, Milky Way. And so it's the best thing to do is to start with a camera lens, not a telescope, and just get a tracker. So the mount is the real piece that you're after, not not the astronomy-dedicated camera, not the telescope, but instead the mount is the magic component for shooting Milky Way. And that's where you need something like a Skywatcher Star Adventurer or, you know, Iobtron makes a great one. Um yeah, we're not talking the, a lot of money here for these mounts no. either. They're just a few hundred dollars. So yeah, the Skyguider no, Pro, I think four hundred bucks. You know, for four hundred yeah. bucks, you're getting a really, really high quality one that will serve you forever on you yep. know double A batteries. Yeah, I I bought one, and you're right. The double A, I put rechargeable double A's in mine, and it'll last a whole night, easy. Uh, it's so, so simple. Yeah, yeah and it's a real and nice because mount. it's because it's so wide field, your polar alignment is you know it's a one second operation you look through it make sure that polaris is somewhere close and you can get away with two minute exposures no problem because your field is so wide you know it's not like with um when you start getting into the long focal length stuff where polar alignment becomes very critical yeah everything is easy at those focal lengths including very forgiving yeah your mount if your balance is slightly off whatever it is you can get away with a lot of mistakes that you just can't get away with on the other fronts so a DSLR, and I got to say, you know, first of all, folks, this is like a not when what you'll end up with at the end of all of this. If you do like a lot of the spacescapes that I've seen uh, people do, the professionals do, is you'll end up with this beautiful picture of half the sky with the Milky Way filled with colors and 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 all kinds of features of the Milky Way built in, and then there will be this real beautiful foreground image of the landscape itself that the astrophotographer is set up in you couldn't get a more unrealistic picture you would not see this if you went there and tried to look up at the milky way but they are they were a lot of techniques are involved to build these images up like you would take uh, a certain image to get the foreground uh, landscape and then you would compose that with multiple images of the stars in the background and the results are just stunning but as as dustin said all of this is very forgiving right you don't need super high quality mounts uh, stars don't start getting fuzzy or or, or uh, trailed until several minutes into the exposure and by then 
your DSLR has gotten some pretty good stars. So exactly. Even at 20 seconds, you can get a phenomenal image. Um, you know, I just posted on Gibson picks Instagram, um, on that Instagram account, I posted a single exposure of the Milky way on a, um, just a radiant tripod and a star adventure mount. And it's, it's unreal what you can get in two minutes compared to a lot of the shots I do that are 40 hours plus, you know, um, and so it is a really fun for the people that want instant gratification. Milky Way photography is the answer. It is really simple and you can get a phenomenal image your first night doing it. All you need is a really stable tripod and a tracking head. Right. And the, the best time of year to do that is now, essentially, through the summer months when you can see Scorpio uh, and uh, Sagittarius. Sagittarius is a constellation that uh, uh, if you look through that, you're looking directly at the center of our galaxy. So yeah. this time of year is among the best to get the Milky Way. However, if you're out in the wintertime looking at Orion, you can do similar things and see the entire constellation of Orion, for example, and see build the, the details of all the features that are in that constellation as well, the Pleiades and, and all of that kind of stuff. So there's, it's a year round thing you can do, but the Milky Way is most visible uh, during the summer months, at least in the Northern hemisphere. So. And that's a really great point because people think that Milky Way season ends when Orion shows up, but what it does, what it really does is you transition that those two components I just told you about. I mean, we, it was so important to us. I mean, we designed the tripod around that specifically for the radiant <laughs> tripod, but you know, you've got those two things you can bring in your car with you. It runs on double A's, no cables involved. And as soon as the Milky Way is gone, you have Orion up and people don't realize how big that constellation is, especially yeah. when it comes to how much hydrogen is surrounding the entire thing with like Barnard's Loop. You've got the Witch's Head Nebula there, you know, on the other side of it, you you know, Horsehead Nebula, Orion Nebula, just to the... Um, just to the east of it, you've got um, the Cone Nebula and the Rosette Nebula, the Crab Nebula. Like literally everything right in that region is a nebula. Everything. Now, and do you so, need to do anything weird to get uh, like Barnard's Loop as primarily H2 uh, molecular hydrogen? Is there any way you have to do anything to your DSLR to have that come up or will it come up automatically if you expose for a long enough time? Barnard's loop. So it depends on your camera sensitivity to hydrogen alpha because a lot of the cut filters start a little early, which means that they're not super HA sensitive. I know that Canon has one called the RA now, which does allow hydrogen to pass fully. Uh, Fujifilm cameras do this as well. Okay. Uh, so depending on the camera, you can see it. I mean, if I go out with my Fuji camera and I snap a photo, if it's a 30 seconds photo, it will light up all that red. But I've had Canon cameras before and certain Nikon cameras where you can do a long exposure and see nothing at all. And it's because the filters in the camera already are actually cutting that HA. So it really depends. Um, some cameras have to be modified. Most anymore do not. But it's still, um, it's still something to know based on you know, the type of camera you have where that cut starts. Okay, before we leave this particular kind of photography, let me just ask you, is, it, is anybody using uh, cell phones for this? Is, there any, is that yeah. possible oh, yeah. or just not? Yeah, the, the newest cell phones can do it pretty well. I've seen some photos that look like they were taken with you know, DSLRs. Um, I mean, they're still not going to be the ones that you see that are going to make the cover of Nat Geo or anything like that. But to be able to see the Milky Way at all, 
is pretty incredible when you consider yeah. how much technology fits in your pocket to make On that your reality. Phone, yeah. I know. <laughs> yeah. So you can definitely do it. Those long exposure um, settings will allow that. So it's, it's pretty incredible and it's only going to get better and better. Okay, cool. And I'm sure there'll be apps that come out, astrophotography apps that come out that you can like download on iOS and stuff. There is one thing I should mention here about cameras. So the other question I get for more advanced users, because this everything I'm saying here is really for the beginner. It's for people that are getting into this, but people will ask the question, well, if my DSLR can do that and I'm going to be stacking exposures, shouldn't I still shoot my full frame cooled CMOS camera or and just put a camera lens on it? or my full frame, you know, cooled CCD. And the answer is, if you're that advanced, yes, you will get a better image with it. Your, your data is always going to be better that way. If you're doing long exposures and stacking and doing all of that, yes, but you lose a lot of the benefits of simplicity there. Now we're talking about a, almost a different hobby because you're going out with a computer, you're going out with all these cables, power supplies. It's not a double A adventure anymore. So if you're going out after the absolute best data possible and you're already advanced, advanced in the hobby and you have this equipment, yes. But getting started in it um, or for people that have been in it a long time that just enjoy that simplicity, myself included in that group, I would just say, hey, you know, take the double A adventure. <laughs> you know, I like leave, that double A adventure. <laughs> leave the cables at home for a day and just go out and enjoy the night sky and push the button, watch it show up on the back screen and just enjoy it. You know, and that's yeah, it's it's almost two different hobbies. But yes, you can still get better data by going with an astronomy dedicated camera. Okay, good point. Excellent question. Okay, so let's go on to planetary imaging now. Um, what are some of the things that people need to worry about with planetary imaging? And should we include lunar and solar with this or is that kind of different yes i think it i think we should roll it all in together so when we say planetary you're talking mars jupiter saturn venus um and then let's say lunar so the moon and solar if you have a solar telescope because they use the same cameras and the reason they use the same cameras is because these cameras are designed to give up that context when i say context you don't want to have a too large of a sensor for a couple reasons. But the main reason is that your sensor is going to help. It's part of the equation of determining field of view is the sensor size. And you don't want a huge sensor to have to read off every frame because the way that all of these types of photography work, if we roll them all into planetary, is you do really high frame rate stuff called lucky imaging. Where yeah, we talked about that last episode. Exactly. Yeah. What you're trying to do is beat the atmosphere. The atmosphere above you has this, you know, wavy tendency to really, it, it's a disturbance above you that you're amplifying with the magnification of your telescope. And on planetary, it's extremely, it's the highest of all magnification, which is why when I relate this to, related this to my friend, I told him planetary imaging would be the standard photography equivalent of macro photography right? You're really reaching in there and you've got, you want just that fly, not even the whole fly, just the fly's eyeball to take up your whole image. That's planetary imaging. It's where you give up context. You don't want the dark sky around Saturn. You want Saturn to be as big and as clear as possible. And so the way to do that is to magnify the hell out of it, you know, at focal lengths that would for everything else be absurd. But the way you beat the atmosphere, because when you do that, you're going to have a really muddy image because the atmospheric disturbance above you, you know, it, it faults your, or it causes problems in your image. And so you shoot as many frames a second as possible. And then what happens is those 
fractions of a second in between the disturbances in the atmosphere that you get a really sharp image, you only keep those. And the software will do this for you. But you tell the software to throw away everything else. So you might take 10,000 frames and tell it only keep the best 20% of those frames. And then it's going to stack those fraction of a second moments where the seeing was perfect. But you can't get that fast of a readout with a really large sensor because it's just too much data coming into the computer. Yeah, so you really want video frame rates here. Uh, yeah, at this. absolutely. Yeah, high In fact, frame some people rate use video. video cameras for for these kinds of imaging. And of course, it's possible because planets are extended objects; they're brighter than uh, than you would get for the nebula and things like that. So exactly. So you can go to f ratios that wouldn't make sense for any other type, like f twenty two or something crazy that you would never want to shoot a wide field shot with. You'd, it would just be too dark. But like you said, planets are extremely bright. I mean, shooting the sun is a great example, right? You're shooting a star like that close, it's extremely bright. So you can get away with these really slow focal ratios that give you a lot of focal length and then just do lucky imaging. So you want the small sensor so that you don't have wasted resolution off of your target. And you also want the small sensor so that you can read it out extremely fast. And some of these manufacturers, they make planetary cameras. That's basically dedicated for this. And they're almost always very affordable. They're just a few hundred dollars, right? So oh, yeah. Because the chips are small, like you say. They're fast readout. People are that. getting into planetary cameras that do a phenomenal job, like the ZWO ASI-120. I think that camera, brand new, is like $150 brand new. And so planetary, even getting, you know, professional level planetary stuff, people are buying cameras that are, you know, $1,000. So it's not like the other types of photography, even DSLRs, where you get into thousands of dollars with planetary, it's really uh, relatively inexpensive to do it at a very top level, as far as just the camera component goes. Obviously, the telescopes are going to be a different thing. Right. I'm glad you brought that up because while you don't need an expensive camera, because you're operating at such high magnifications, you need a good mount, a solid mount, which can have, which has extraordinarily great pointing accuracy. So that you're spending quite a bit of money on that. Um, can you talk a little bit about how you increase focal? We, you talk about high magnification. We, we make my high magnification by adjusting the focal length. And how can people do that? So what there are a couple of things that you can get away with here. So a lot of people are some of the best photographers in the world for planetary are using uh, C14s from Celestron or Mead 14s, things like that. And so you've got long focal length scope, you know, 3000 millimeters plus scopes. But what's interesting is that people will often look at the two like Celestron scopes or whichever one, and they'll say, I see an edge HD and I see a non-edge HD. And if you look at the people that are doing some of the best planetary in the world, they're actually using the less expensive one. And the reason is because they don't want those extra elements. They don't want those refractive elements in the scope. Those elements are there to flatten out the image across the whole image plane, across the whole image circle. And so you have this big, wide image circle that can handle big sensors. But remember, for planetary imaging, you don't need that. All you care about is the very center of what that scope can produce. And so at 3000 millimeters, you want the scope, all you care about is this, this tiny little fraction of the image circle in the middle. And so you can get away with it. And then you start even amplifying that even more, spreading out that middle by adding things called bar lows or tele extenders. 
Um, you know, Teleview makes what I would argue is one of the best ones in the world called the PowerMate. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Uh, the PowerMate is designed for photography. It is absolutely incredible. It's worth every penny. And not only does it do what most Barlows do, most Barlows amplify the magnification by two. So the focal length by two. Um, what a the tele, Teleview uh, PowerMates actually have a 2x, 3x, 4x, and 5x option. And that oh, really right. matters because you want those insane focal lengths in order to get, you know, the targets large enough to where you can divide your resolution across the full target. So I try to, try to imagine when I'm going to need a 15 hundred no fifteen thousand millimeter focal length <laughs> yeah yeah that is crazy man yeah oh, oh for wow. sure for sure and you would need a big telescope to utilize that but remember that when remember when we were talking to the director of the giant magellan telescope they were saying that their focal length was like three hundred thousand millimeters or something crazy yeah, it was insane. Right? You but, check out that episode, uh, folks. It was a good one. Yeah. <laughs> but remember, yeah, as remember your that. telescope gets bigger, you can utilize longer focal lengths and actually get something from it. So, um, yeah, you wouldn't want to make a you know a four inch refractor fifteen thousand millimeter. You're just gonna be laughable. But um, you know, as you get these big scopes, yeah, you can really push them. And we should point out that when you magnify things, you're magnifying everything. You're magnifying the the atmosphere between you and the planet. You're yeah. magnifying oh, yeah. every single vibration that's happening around the telescope. And so everything gets magnified. So you do need to pay a lot of careful attention when operating in high magnifications uh, for doing this. But the payoff is, is, is stunning. You can get these as, you know, as using this, high frame rate, uh, lucky imaging technique, you can get all kinds of really cool images out of it. And who knows, man, you might get a APOD out of it. They're so they're, they're, they're every bit as good, I think, as what space telescopes can take for sure. And over the past many years, you know, places like the Philippines and in many, um, islands in lower latitudes have had an advantage because the planets go directly overhead closer to Zenith. So they get the most stable seeing conditions for a portion of the night for planetary, but that changes over time. And so the, you know, the, um, North American latitudes, the, at least the Southern latitudes in North America are going to have you know, an advantage here, you know, over the coming years for planetary. So for people getting into planetary, it's not a bad time to really start honing those skills because I think the best planetary images um, are still yet to come. I really do. I think it's just going to get better and better. Right. And when, what you're looking for are these things called oppositions. That's when we are at the closest these planets we're going to be, or we're going to get to them uh, in our orbits. And so uh, those, those produce large apparent diameter uh, uh, images in your, in your field of view. And they're, they're, you get real big, bright images of the planets. Um, should we talk anything special about the moon and the sun before we go? Other than with the sun, you need a solar telescope, obviously. Uh, I don't really think they're that special, you know? Okay. The sun's not important. The moon really should have been its own planet. <laughs> the sun's not important. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you heard it here first, folks. <laughs> we don't. <laughs> we don't need. This. Oh, the most ignorant statement of the day. Uh, <laughs> probably not. Actually, we we'll so, do nothing for man. Get rid yeah, of it. Yeah, the sun's not important. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I I've only ever taken one solar image. Um, I love 
you know, we have a lot of affiliates that do it so well. Jason Gwinzel, oh, you know, the vast reaches, he absolutely kills it. So does Tim um, on Instagram. I mean, some of if you look at some of our affiliates' photos, they are just they're so next level. Um, but yeah, you can you can do phenomenal solar imaging from the earth where you're seeing these prominences, you know, shoot off the sun. You can see all the sunspots and, and just activity on, you know, what we'd call the surface of the sun, which is truly, I mean, incredible to watch. And it's so dynamic. It changes rapidly. Especially coming up next next week, Dustin and I are going to do a, a beginning of our solar episode, which you'll want to listen to because we're going to talk about this. We're coming up on Solar Max. There's going to be uh, the solar cycles increasing, a lot of cool things to see in photographs. So we'll talk about how to do that uh, next time, but and also the kinds of solar telescopes that are out there. But um, but I just want I think I think the thing to remember here is you're still looking at high magnification, high frame rates, and I think people like Stephen Swancote who who specializes in the moon, at least I thought he did, um, they do mosaics, don't they? They take, you know, such high magnification of the moon, you can't even get it all in one one shot. And you can get these mosaics of the moon that are quite stunning as well. So, but but all of it is uh, basically has the same thing, uh, high frame rates and high magnification. The best lunar images are typically shot as mosaics, yeah, because the moon is is look at the moon compared to you know the planets that we're talking about shooting. But if you shoot it with the same system, you might have enough magnification to only be shooting a single crater, right? Like it can be mm-hmm. really high magnification, and so people yeah. just they combine images. So you shoot the crater, then you shoot one one step over to the right, and then one step over to the right, and then by the time you're done combining it, it ends up being like cosmic background. You know, he's a good friend of mine. And he takes the the most insane lunar shots I've ever seen. But by the time he's done, you know, he set four computers on fire and sank the whole neighborhood's power. You know, the whole grid is down because of this processing, you know, a 200 terabyte image. (laughs) 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 You know, and that's an exaggeration, but just barely. I mean, it's that's what happens when you have these gigantic mosaics, each panel of that mosaic is full resolution. And so you think, what if, if I'm shooting 40 panel mosaic, my one picture of the moon is 40 times my camera's resolution. That is a big file. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's going to be a lot of work to put that together too, but it's, it's, the the results are unprecedented. They're really amazing. You're not processing that that with the sun too. You can do the same thing with the sun. If you've got the right kind of solar telescope for it and, and can pump that, focal length up I, it's a little different there but you you know you can do it that way too right. um but as you know the 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 surface features on the sun move a lot to prevent a lot of that from happening mm-hmm. well people are, the coolest thing i'm seeing with with solar stuff and i'm sure you've seen this too people are making the uh the movies you know they're mm-hmm. doing the short you yeah. know 10 or yeah like a 10 second movie of a time lapse of the sun watching yeah. you know the prominences watching everything move and i think that's what's so cool about it and that's why you know it's so interesting is because it's so dynamic it changes rapidly and you can you know do these uh, even in a single day just take a ton of pictures of the sun and watch it change over the course of a day. And it will not be like, Oh, I think I saw a change. You'll see a lot of changes, especially during (laughs) max. Yeah. You get a quarter angstrom double stack filter and you will see some amazing details. So, uh, most, most definitely, but we'll get into that next week. Let's move. Let's move now to wide field, uh, deep space uh, observations. What, um, 
what kind of a setup would we need for that? This would be, well, first of all, describe what we mean by wide field DSO. Yeah, so wide field would be, so we have two types of uh, DSO, right? So deep sky objects, you can take the same thing, um, let's say the Eagle Nebula, right? If you shoot the Eagle Nebula, most people see it as the pillars of creation. That's what I would call long focal length uh, DSO. That's where you're going to have three, 4,000 millimeters, something like that. And you're going to, your whole frame is just the pillars of creation. And that's the Eagle Nebula, that's M16. But wide field would we be where you back out and you can see the Eagle Nebula, all the surrounding gas, everything that's there. You might even get the Swan Nebula there next to it, you know, but it's really like wide field. Um, and so the way I describe these to my photographer friend was that it's really the difference in taking both of them are taking pictures, let's say, of your kid. But one of them is taking a picture of your kid at the park playing where you can see all this context and everything going on. And the other is taking a seated portrait where all you can see is their face, right? So it's, um, it's the difference in really magnifying to where you lose the context of the surrounding elements and you just get the single nebula itself would be long focal length DSO and wide field would be like what you described earlier, where I want to shoot a huge chunk of Orion, the constellation, not the nebula. You know, I want a big chunk of that so I can get multiple nebulae in the same thing or the whole nebula, um, you know, and, and I think that they're almost two. They're so different in their challenges that it almost becomes two like very specialty classes. You have certain people that have made their made a name for themselves and like own a category of DSO. Like someone that comes to mind, I'd say Rogelio Bernal Andrea, who's also been here on the podcast. Um, awesome, awesome. Just a great human being yeah, in general. So talented at everything he touches. Um, it's kind of disgusting. He's so good at everything. But anyway. <laughs> Does it be jelly? <laughs> yeah. He's so good. Every time I tell him, you're, you're too good at everything. Um, anyway. Uh, he has carved out this niche of being the wide field guy. You know, you know, when you see an image from, um, Rogelio, it's going to be a wide field shot and he goes after those really faint details. And that's, that's his specialty. That's what he's great at. And so you have, um, you know, you have other, uh, photographers like Adam Block, who I would say is on the other end of it, where most of the things you see with him are so long focal length and so precise on a target that they pull details out of, you know, a galaxy that no one ever knew existed before because they're just so focused on really zooming into that, that single object and pulling out whatever structure is there. And I think that, you know, that's kind of the difference, even though both are about DSO, the same DSOs, they're two entirely different perspectives on those targets. And so what, and they would also take two different kinds of cameras, right? So the long field camera uh, would be different than, I'm sorry, the wide field camera would be different than the long focal length camera, right? Uh, yeah. So you can, there's a little more overlap here than there is with the other stuff. There's definitely more overlap between DSOs than there is between say like DSOs and planetary. Um, but the reason is because both cameras need to be cooled. Um, both cameras need to match their pixel size to the focal length, but that's where the cameras really kind of change is that with long focal length, um, you need a lot larger pixels. So it won't be a great thing. Let's say you have a really great 60 megapixel, 70 megapixel camera for wide field 
um, astrophotography that matches perfectly to a 300 millimeter focal length. And so you get great resolution, great detail at 300 millimeters focal length. That same camera is not going to perform well at full resolution on a 3000 millimeter image, right? It's just going to be way oversampled. This, everything's going to look bloated and a little bit blurry. It's not going to be sharp. And so you need much larger pixels. And that's a good rule of thumb is the longer the focal length, the bigger the pixel, right? So generally what's kind of become the standard when you say long focal length, I'd say like 20, 2000 millimeters and up is people try to get to that nine micron pixel marker. And that's really ideal for these longer focal lengths. It's not always possible because those cameras get expensive. Big pixels get expensive on cameras. Um, but, you know, most of the ones you see when you see a plane wave or you see these really long focal length, um, you know, reflectors of any type, RCs, most of the time you're going to see chips like the 11002 or the 16803, um, some of these, the 9000. These chips have become very popular because they all share one thing, which is nine micron pixels. Well, that's that's actually a good segue, I think, into talking about some of the brands, don't you? Do you want to? Sure. How do you yeah, want to yeah, do this? There's, there's a lot of lot of brands. So do you want to try and go down through each one, or do you just want to go through some of your favorites? I can just give wanna... some like some generalities about brands okay. because here's the thing: okay. um, there are, let's say, um, I'd say that there are probably fifty camera brands out there. Opt carries. Um, most of the camera brands, generally we carry all of the camera brands that meet, we have a, you know, I know we've talked about this before. We have a quality standard. So right. you'll see brands on OPT's website. It's because they've passed the test. And so I, there's nothing bad there or they wouldn't be on there. And that's why if you see cameras, you know, drop off a lot of times it's because, you know, something in the arrangement didn't work, including what could be, you know, quality or just customer service or, or whatever it is. But, but with that said, each one is there because it serves a specific function for somebody and has something that it offers that other do others don't. It's not there just to compete in the exact same space and have the exact same offering, even if they look the same, which is going to be the case in a lot of them because they share sensors. And so that's the first thing is when you're buying a camera, what you're buying first and foremost is a sensor. And so you're really trying to, like I said, you want to match the sensor to what you're trying to do. Do I need a small sensor for planetary, a big sensor for wide field, or big pixels for long focal length? You're buying that sensor structure. And so, um, you know, looking at the brands, you'll find that certain, like I just mentioned the 16803, which is actually a discontinued trip, chip as of recently, but SBIG sold that, Moravian sold that, FLI sold that, QHY sold that, uh, Starlight instruments or i'm sorry starlight express sold that and on and on and on a lot of people sold that chip but there were subtle differences in each camera and that's what you're really buying is the first thing you do is select the chip and then you're going to see that a lot of different manufacturers offer that sensor that chip and so then what you get into with each brand is generally price which is something brands focus very hard on. You have value brands that come in with like very high quality for a price point. Like I'd say ZWO is they do such a phenomenal job at offering cameras that perform extremely well at a price point that, you know, before them, most companies would have said would have been impossible. 
Um, so they have become an industry leader in that category on offering cameras that are just, they, they offer so much bang for the buck. QHY is another one, but those, and they offer a lot of the same sensors. And so, you know, in a lot of people's minds, I'd say that they were direct competitors in that because same, same, uh, you know, same chips, they offer a lot of the same type of packages, but in my mind, they're really not the same thing or not even really close because they, they target two very different kind of categories. I know with QHY, uh, we see it a lot more in the professional space because it, it has a little more control offering on some of the chips. Like for instance, uh, the 6200 from ZWO and then the QHY 600, people ask me, well, which one's better? And it's one of those questions like, well, there, there is no right answer here. One is better for someone looking to get the benefit of this chip at the, the cheaper price point. I'd say the ZWO wins. If you don't need some of the advanced features or you never intend to use them, then ZWO is a better fit there. If you want that flexibility to be able to trade off dynamic range, um, affect, you know, sensitivity levels or get a little more manual control of the camera, then the QHY is going to be better. If you don't need that, then you might not want to pay for that. It really just depends on what you have, but they're not well, the me, same Let me ask thing. you this real quick then about that, about that issue. If is, isn't that just a matter of software or is the hardware physically different? No, it's that physically it's like different. For the ZWO, you can't do things that the QHY will let you do. No, it's it's different. So like, for instance, they have that same chip in what's called a QHY 600 Pro. Okay. And the Pro, so ZWO's uh, readout in order to keep costs down is USB 3, which is phenomenal. It's great. It's better. You know, most cameras are still USB 2, which really needs to change. Things need to go USB 3. And that's why when I talk about value, I'm like, man, they are putting out some great stuff. Yeah. That's part. like, that's like the Thunderbolt uh, speeds on Apple. They're very, yeah. they're video, they're video speed. So they're real they're, fast. They're excellent. But you can get that camera for 30, I think it's 3,600 bucks. Forgive me if I'm a little bit off. I think it's right in that range. I don't have all of these SKUs memorized. Um, but I think it's right in that range, under $4,000. Um, and then the QHY Pro version with the same sensor has a little bit deeper cooling. But what you're really paying for is it has a fiber optic port in the back. And so... What about yeah, so it is hardware? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So what about people that need that USB three still just is not enough? They need to read that thing out at insane rates, and they're doing science with it, and they're going to be pulling data off that thing like crazy and sending it out, you know. And they're they're building these big networks of them and stuff like that. It's like, well, that that wouldn't work. You can't take that USB three and make it do that, but that camera out of the box can do it with the other version, even though the camera is you know twice the price. Okay. So things like adjusting sensitivity, all of that, it's not just software, it's built into the camera it's both, yeah. capability itself. It's both. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. Okay. And, it, and it varies uh, case by case, depending on the cameras that we're comparing. But these are just two, that's just two cameras that came to mind because, you know, they're, they're pretty obvious differences. And, you know, I would say like for the people that ask me, hey, should I get, I see the, the QHY is more expensive and you're a, just, you're going out to take pretty pictures. Do you need that? that fiber yeah. no absolutely not don't don't pay an extra several thousand dollars for something you're not going to use it would be yeah more challenging for you to do that without an infrastructure already set up for it 
then it's going to be worth to you. Really think hard about that, folks, because you really want to, it'll save you a lot of money or cost you a lot of money if you yeah. don't. So just, uh, yeah, really have these questions at least somewhat in your mind. And yeah. I guess, you know, without sounding, you know, too much like um, a commercial for, for uh, OPT, you can call you guys, right? And answer, get these questions answered. So it's like, that's stuff that you can just get with a phone call anyway, get these questions answered. Like, well, what yeah, do I, it's funny, what man, because, you know, I, I joked with the team after, um, after we did our last camera episode, I was like, Hey, I did OPT university twice today. Uh, <laughs> yeah. because this is, this is the same thing. So the staff, the staff has to go through this every single day, every single day we have these meetings, um, with everybody customer facing so that they know these things. So yes, when people call, it's they're going to hear the same stuff. And and there are, each one has a specific use case, as you know. But I mean, cameras, you want to get the right camera for the job. And different cameras have different jobs. And that's why, even though it may have the same chip, you really want to look at the different capabilities, the different hardware. What are the noise, you know, what what have they done to really eliminate noise? Like, like QSI, are they built a brand on putting out chips that everyone else was putting out and making the claim, we do the same thing, but we have 10% less noise than everybody else. And they built an entire brand by just making something that was bulletproof, that had um, you know less noise than everybody else in the, the uh, electronics. And it worked. And, you know, they they have this cult following. Um, I own QSI cameras. One of my cameras sitting five feet from me right now is a QSI because, you know, that's that's what people are willing to pay for is those little subtle differences. Even though it's going to be the same chip, you can get a still a better image going, you know, with certain things. Well, you said the six. What was it? The 1680. What was it? 16803. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you said that that's discontinued now. What are it people is. using now instead? Uh, there's one called the Kepler 4040. Well, you know, there's this big shift from CCD to CMOS. And everything is kind of going through that right now. So it's a transition period right now. But the 16803 is one of the most successful sensors of all time. Um, and along with a lot of CCD sensors, it got discontinued. So actually, we we own all of them right now. <laughs> everything <laughs> everything that was left, I just was like, I don't know, man. I use them. I love the CCD chips, and I love the 16803 specifically. It's what I use in my observatory. And so when I found out they were going out, I just bought everything that was left. Um, that, you know, anything we could find, we just bought it. And so we still have a few. But everything is switching to what's called a Kepler 4040 is the most popular one. And the reason is because it has a lot of the same structure. So the sensor size is the same. The pixel size is the same. The biggest difference is one is CCD and one is CMOS. I don't know that that's a good thing, Dustin. What do you think about that? Going from just you know, de-emphasizing CCDs, or as we talked about last week, that's, there's a huge need for CCD uh, chips. Yeah, well, they're not going to go away entirely. I don't think CMOS is ever going to like totally replace CCDs. You don't, you don't think so? You don't think the technology will get there? I, I just think, well, unless the noise can be brought way down, um, yeah, that's the biggest problem with CMOS chips. Still, I mean, they've gotten it down, but it's still, I just don't see it. Uh, I, I, I don't know. I, I guess I need to look into this more. But it seems distressing to me that CMOS is taking over even the scientific grade, you know, monochrome imaging cameras. Well, there are a couple of things that are like saving graces there is that, like you said, it's scientific grade stuff. That's where, that's where those things become extremely important. Even the, the uh, fiber port I just talked about, that's where that stuff is important and that's who's buying yeah, it. Yeah. But those companies 
are generally very large companies. The people that are doing this are universities or, you know, um, you know, the, the Lockheeds of the world or things like that. And so for them, if it's what they need, they're still going to get it anyway. And, you know, we still offer CCDs. It's just out of a lot of them are going to be out of the price point of backyard photography. So mm. because they're not going to be as mass produced, um, that's what really changed is the mass production of these CCDs. That's you can true. still get similar stuff. You can still get CCDs. They're just going to be more expensive. But it's not like who manufactured the sixteen eight hundred three. That was uh, it was a KAF, so Kodak initially, and then they got bought by On Semi. Oh, okay. And this new one, would you call it the Kepler? What forty four? Yeah, I think that's a Sony chip. I don't know off the top of my head. I think that's a Sony chip, though. Most of the new stuff that's coming out in the big range are Sony, but I don't, I don't know. It might not be. I can look that up. Okay. Yeah, okay. Well, it's. Uh, I don't know. Well, I guess we'll see. I, I, I suppose if the photometry and the and the, well, you know, the the ability to go from QE to fo from, uh, from QE to uh, from electrons to photons to flux and all of that, I suppose, you know, is if you can do that with CMOS, then I guess we haven't lost anything. Um, but the dis and and presumably these won't have those Bayer matrices on top, right? Yeah, no, oh, it's a they? it's a G. I'm sorry, it's a G sense or it's a G pixel G sense 400. So, oh, okay, yeah, yeah, it is. Um, but anyway, um, and they and they will have those matrices matrices on top. Those Bayer. No, they have filters. them. In, they have them in monochrome and color. Oh, good. Okay, all right. So that's another like layer that you want to remove if you're trying to do uh, monochrome imaging for for one or you know uh, photometry for another. So. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Well, it's just one of those things now where it's like, well, you can you can kind of resist it if you want to, but things are going that way. And honestly, people are taking some of the best images I've ever seen with CMOS cameras. So it's not when it first came up, I, everybody was just kind of like, oh, this is going to be scary. This isn't good. And then mm -hmm. as the new cameras and the technology, all of the investment, think about how much money that is from all of these companies going into making sure that there is no gap. Even if there is a gap, I think they're going to close it very, very quickly just because there's such huge funding on the science right now to make these things, uh, to drive the technology forward. And this is the path of the future. So, you know, I think it's something worth embracing. And, uh, you know, I, I really think that the cameras are just going to get better to the point where nobody misses the CCD. I really do. Okay. Well, far be it from me to be a harumpher on this issue. So I'm, <laughs> I will definitely keep my mind open and see. Yeah. Well, look at some of the images. Look at the more recent APODs. Everybody's shooting right. them with CMOS cameras. Right, but there's more to the there's more to astronomy imaging than than pretty pictures. So that's why professional was, space is where it hurts, man. Yeah, that's where. Yeah, it hurts. yeah. Okay. Well, what about I'm looking at some of these brands here, and maybe we could talk a little bit about some of the big names and telescopes that I guess also have uh, cameras. I mean, you know, Mead, there's Celestron, Skywatcher, Orion. What are they putting out, and what what kind of you know, how good are their cameras? Yeah, so they're they're popular. Celestron has very popular planetary cameras. Um, not as popular on the deep space front. Mead is mostly making a deep space camera. They have one that's a color camera with a Panasonic chip that's pretty popular. Um, and then Orion has one that's very, very popular for auto guiding. So it's a specialty camera called the Starshoot Auto Guider that uh, you know we sell a lot of because it's a very inexpensive auto guider. It was kind of before 
the ZWO and QHY and some of the other brands got so popular. So it was the option before those, but you know, it still remains pretty popular. And then, um, you know, Skywatcher has a set of cameras that come from Starlight Express that uh, are very, very high quality, very high quality. They come in the Skywatcher green and they come as a package. And so it's not, they're not, none of the brands I'd say are putting out uh, bad stuff at all. And then the Revolution Imager is on that list as well. And that's a completely different thing from everything else on the list. That's a $300 system with its own screen and it's a video astronomy thing. So it's it's specific for specifically for outreach at a budget price point that allows you to just use that instead of an eyepiece. Yes, you see, actually you sent me one of these and I've been meaning to uh to set that up. I need a mount uh to use it with cuz I just have the the optical tube assembly, but once I get a mount, I was going to put that on there and see what it was like for outreach because uh it looks really interesting. It's got like a 7 7 inch monitor on it mm-hmm. and a little tiny camera that fits in your eyepiece and and uh, eyepiece holder and yeah, it, it looked a lot like it was a precursor to the uh to the uh Stellina and the uh, right. uh, EV scope kind of it's a three hundred dollar solution, and yeah, it's three hundred bucks. Where you know everybody that steps up to your scope has to refocus because they don't know. You know, if they've never used a telescope before, everybody's eyes are different. So everybody stepping up has to refocus, which means every time somebody steps up, you have to tell them how focus works, and then wonder: Did they actually do it right? Did they see it, or are they just saying they saw it? You know, you don't know. Um, <laughs> whereas you've been to a star party or two. Yeah. Whereas. <laughs> If you just have this screen mounted to the side of your telescope, it's in foc- it's in focus for everybody that walks up because everybody's got their glasses on or whatever, and everybody's seeing you know basically the same or they can get closer to it. Um, so everybody sees it at the same time, and everybody sees it in focus. So it's just a really elegant solution for um, star parties. For 300 bucks that, you know, I think even people that do real imaging, it's cool to have something like that you can throw in just for outreach. Okay. So is there a camera that would be good for most commercial mounts that you buy off the shelf? Like if you bought a, a C8 or, you know, any of these telescopes that, you know, you can just buy with their mounts and their guiding systems, uh, whether it's the, uh, whether it's the, you know, the Star Navigator from Mead or the the next star from Celestron, what would be a good camera for those kinds of telescopes? Like whether it's a C5 or, you know, uh, maybe an LX80 uh, or whatever it might, whatever it might be. Yeah. So you just mean kind of the Altas go out and. Yeah. I just do- bought it. Yeah. I just bought a telescope. It's one of those complete units. It's mm-hmm. got the, it's got the hand uh, paddle with all my objects in it. It's got a pretty decent clock drive on it. I can run it in Altas or equatorial mode. And I like to take some pictures with it. Yeah. You know, I got it's a C, you know, it's either a C5 or a Mead or something like that, right? Um, what, what would, what kind of camera is there a camera that would be good enough for most of those scopes that I could dip my toe into imaging and see how I like it? Yeah. I, um, so I went to a star party, you know, before all this coronavirus stuff, and I saw a bunch of people using the Attic Infinity. Um, and that is something that works really well. So it's, it's extremely simple to use. If you're not going to use something like the revolution imager, you want something, you know, a little more high quality as far as image goes, something like the attic infinity and there, every brand kind of has its version of this, but that's the one that I think is most popular for this. 
it will do things like auto stack in the software and it will, you know, produce that image for you on these types of scopes very, very quickly and get it to where you have images that are not just showing you the target that like you would see it, you know, through an eyepiece or a little amplified, but actually like worth taking the time to process and share and, um, you know, and in showing you this image compound in front of you so it live stacks in front of you the image just gets better and better it's really it's an impressive uh system and i think those are under a thousand dollars they're uh yeah 975 for those kits so uh yeah really really good stuff okay well now let's 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 go the other way what is the dominant killer camera that you like that that you like the most is it the uh uh is it was it the qs would you say qhy i think you said it was or that you have that's right next to you what was it uh, what's, Q, the, what's the QSI. killer camera qsi qsi so, so there are a lot of really really killer cameras so um all of those brands that i, I mean we mentioned so attic starlight express zwo qhy fli moravian on and on you know i wouldn't i wouldn't say like apogee and spectral instruments those are more for the professional realm, you know, cause those cameras generally start at, you know, 15 to $20,000 and go up into the hundreds of thousands. So it's not really right. the same thing, but you know, S big, I use an S big in my observatory, uh, QSI using the other observatory that, you know, we do for outreach. So none of these cameras that I'm mentioning are bad at all. Every one of these cameras, I would 100% use as my primary camera. And feel very, very good about it. There's not a brand that I just mentioned that I would be like, oh man, I wish I had X. It's just that each brand offers slightly different offerings. You know, FLI has a lot of sensors that, um, you know, other cameras don't make. For a long time, they were the only ones making the 5100. And so you couldn't get that from any other brand. And, you know, SBIG, kind of same thing. They have their self-guiding filter wheels and no one else has that. So... There are subtle differences between these these brands and some some differences not so subtle. But I think as you kind of dig into each one, you see that they are their own contained little like ecosystems where once you buy into a brand, there there are very um complete offerings within that brand. You know, ZWO, if we take them for example, I mean, you can run their camera, their camera connects directly to their filter wheel. It comes with all the adapters to get you to the correct back focus on most telescopes. And then you can run that with their focuser so that you have autofocus. And the whole thing can be controlled by their computer, which is called an ASI Air Pro. So it's like, like I said, I mean, it's an entire little ecosystem that you can stay within brand on a lot of these brands and have everything kind of covered, you know, and then they have their guide cameras. I mean, they have everything that you would need to have a kit. And that's what, you know, some brands have really made a primary focus is getting a completed solution. Yeah. There's nothing like a, a really good autofocuser and a filter wheel to make your life uh, just, a, you know, much, much easier using these, using these cameras. We should do an episode on this. We should talk about all these different accessories that, and what the pluses and minuses of having them are, because, you know, things like autofocusers that you, you just, I, that's probably the single most important thing we use is focus once you've dealt with all these other things. And so we should probably have an episode on that as well. Um, what, what kind of, re, what kind of resolution are we talking about? We never really said that earlier. These, these 16803 chips, what's the resolution on those? And then what, are they any different in the newer ones that are coming out? Uh, you, I know you said they're nine, they're nine microns, but how many? 
So the resolution on which ones now? I'm sorry. Uh, the 16803, for example, that. Chip yeah, that's that you 16 megapixels. So okay. nine micron pixels, 16 megapixels. Uh, the 9000 is nine megapixels. The 11002 is 11 megapixels. So you kind of see, okay. you kind of see the trend. Nine. These are big chips. These yeah. Are big. So usually the first two numbers are going to kind of give you some clues. So the 16803 has 16 megapixels. The 11002 has 11 megapixels. Oh, it's um, built into the model number. Yeah. Okay. On most on most chips, it is. Um, and so, you know, most of the really high end sensors are around that 16 megapixel area, that 10 to 16 megapixel, uh, which I know sounds really low to a lot of people, but it's because you're trading for pixel size. If you have a certain amount of real estate, that sensor size, you can only fit so many pixels on that. The smaller they are, the more you can fit on there. So you can have higher resolution numbers or the bigger they are the more sensitive you get because you have bigger pixels, but your resolution goes down. So you get like, you know, 10 or 16 megapixels instead of say 60, you know, but you got bigger pixels, so they're more sensitive. So it's a trade-off, but most people getting the really big chips prefer that sensitivity um, to resolution because the only time you're going to need, you know, hundred megapixels is if you're printing on the side of a building. Right. And uh, you can see our discussion from last week on what on Dustin talking about well depth and 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 re versus resolution and all that other stuff as well. So uh, we talked about that last week. OK, well, um, gosh, I think we covered most stuff, didn't we, Dustin? Is there anything more we want to we want to say before we end this episode? Uh, no. Yeah. No, I, I, I was just about to say the one camera that is the best camera of all time that everyone should have. But, you know, I think we're out of time, man. So why don't we? Oh, yeah. yeah the yeah. one that you got to have and you would be the most happy with, solves, with if you owned it. <laughs> solves yeah. every problem. It's only $4. Um, yeah, it's $4. Yeah. World peace ensues. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> so we're tune out of in time, next time. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, the World Problem Solver Telescope. Yeah, uh, yep. yeah. WPS, that's what it's called. So, yep. um, all right. <laughs> all right, Dustin. Well, we'll go ahead and close out this episode. This is our second and last one for now on cameras. We'll return to this subject quite a bit more. Next week, we'll be talking about solar observing and solar telescopes. So you want to check out that. And hopefully, we'll have some people coming from different manufacturers to talk to us as well on the, on the uh, te solar telescope front. So uh, we'll keep you guys posted. Okay, well, on behalf of Dustin Gibson, my name's Tony Darnell, and you've been listening to Space Junk Podcast. Thank you so much for doing that. And as always, keep looking up. Space Junk is produced by Deep Astronomy and sponsored by OPT Telescopes in Carlsbad, California. Please visit our website at spacejunkpodcast.com. Also, please send any questions and comments or ideas for new episodes to spacejunk at deepastronomy.com. <laughs>